briefly introduce uh, Andrew Monaghan, um, who is, um, I think I can say that you're a, a friend as well as a colleague. Yeah, uh, sure. He um, uh, currently works with Chatham where he is a title senior research fellow in Russia and Eurasia program. He's also, uh, crucially, a visiting research fellow on the Changing Power War program at the moment, um, and he has worked, as we were discussing over lunch, at the NATO Defence College um, in Rome, for some years there, um, and his, um, he's made already a reputation for himself in terms of carrying out research on um, Russia. And contrary to those who think uh, in this sort of policy think tank world that everything that's written about Russia or needs to be known about Russia is already known, you will get this afternoon a refreshing new take on a subject that you think we all know about, and that I'm afraid many of us are frankly completely misunderstood. Andrew, thank you very much for hearing this talk. Um, the floor is yours. Thank you, Rob, for that very generous introduction. Uh, yes, I did wonder how many people would turn out today with Russia in the news and so forth, uh, the, the drama we've had over the last year or so. Uh, and it's, it's a pleasure to see the, the, the room full. Thank you very much for coming on this uh, rather cold day. So I will speak for about 45 minutes or so, perhaps a bit less. What I would like to do in talking about Russia is to raise a number of different subjects that are related towards the main theme, which is the idea of Russian grand strategy. One of the things I have noticed over the last year or so, well, a bit longer, but, but over the last year or so, is the separation of, of Russia studies on the one hand and strategic studies and wider political decision-making on the other. Uh, it seems to me that the Russia studies often talk about strategy, but they talk about it in such a way that it is often running against the main themes of discussion in strategy, the strategic discussion itself. So strategy becomes synonymous with policy. It becomes, um, well, strategy and tactics are often used interchangeably in the discussion about Russia. But at the same time, the strategic studies discussion, the international relations and foreign policy discussion, will try to discuss Russia, but without a great deal of the expertise that is probably necessary for how Russia functions, who the main Russianists are, who the, who the main political figures are, sorry, the officials, and the nature of the system within. So there's a gap that has tended to split, and the split has become ever more, more evident as we see the discussion more, becoming more, more partisan during the war last year. Uh, just to give you an overview of what I'm going to say, um, some, some thoughts here, that what I'm going to try to do is to put a foot in both camps today. I realize this is something of a risk, because it probably means creating war on two fronts, which is not always a good idea, because both subjects are quite controversial, both Russia on the one hand and some of the, the questions of strategy. But I do think it's important to bring these two together and at least begin to unpack and, and, and examine some of the aspects of Russian strategy, Russian strategic thinking in this way. My particular interest really is the creation of power in Russia. It seems to me there is a, uh, an overly ethnocentric approach on the first part uh, to, to see Russia, to, to mirror our own thoughts onto Russia, to not, not try to grasp the strategic environment that they themselves see, to overinvent Putin as this as this single figure that dominates Russia, this, this idea that he can get anything done that he likes, which on the one hand is perhaps understandable given his centrality to Russian politics, but on the other hand overlooks 
Russian political culture and ignores Russian strategic messaging. The thrust of my remarks, therefore, as you will see, uh, are that Russia has significantly different horizons, histories, and interpretations of international affairs. Yes, Putin is at the center of a leadership team, a leadership team that has been reflected continuity over the last 15 years, but is evolving. He himself has led a consistent effort to reorganize Russian strategic planning and strategic thinking, uh, which is in, has been broadly in three stages. But like many others, both in Russian history and indeed elsewhere, including in the West, that he and his leadership team have found strategy extremely difficult. A couple of caveats, perhaps, to just to set up my defenses before I, uh, before I continue. I'm not really going to focus much on the Ukraine war. Yes, it's important. Yes, it'll, it, it may come up in the Q&A. And yes, it may indeed reflect the, you know, a, a more specific discussion of Russian military strategy, perhaps. I want to push a bit deeper into understanding uh, how Russia works, how Russia functions, and how it is trying to evolve its creation of power to deal with the, the international context. Second, there are limitations in terms of understanding and knowing about Russian uh, strategic decision-making. Um, it's quite obscure, and some of the parts of it are, are highly classified. So I will mention, just for the sake of, of acknowledgement so that we know it exists, the, uh, the defense plan that was submitted by Defense Minister Shoigu and, and General, Chief of the General Staff Gerasimov um, in January 2013. It's an important document. Indeed, it's, called, it's considered by the Russians to be a system-forming document, and it is focused on trying to coordinate the agencies, 49 agencies across Russia, and also to provide a framework for understanding risks and evolving threats to Russia in the foreseeable future. It is also important to note that this document is a live document that has been associated with the National Defense Center. Now, I have no evidence to, to say that they are actually connected, but from what we see from the public, um, the public announcements of them, they overlap almost entirely. The, the, the National, uh, National Defense Center is the military the security institution that coordinates exactly with the defense plan. <coughs> So, and indeed, this may be where we can find military strategy thinking. I can't go much further on that because, as I say, it's highly classified, but it's important to mention, I think. And finally, strategy. What do I really mean by strategy? Well, here's, here's going to be the risk with, uh, with Hugh Strong sitting in front of me, but I'm going to try and define it anyway. Um, I'm going to aim at grand strategy. Sorry, Sir Hugh. Um, but th this is being the art of creating power, as I suggest. The, the obvious part of the relationship of, of, of political ends with economic, military, political, and social means. Sure, that bit's easy. The two points of focus being this is a sense of process, not, not the politics itself. So I'm looking at the, the prominence of the formulation of plans on the one side and then their implementation on the other. So this, this dual activity, creating the plan and then trying to implement it. And obviously, this has reference to the system and getting the system to function. Therefore, I'm looking at the conducting of the orchestra, so to speak, the coordination and balancing of interests, the dialogue with evolving uh, conditions and context, and the, the, the balance between political flexibility on the one hand 
and uh, in terms of achieving political consensus, but then tailoring that to something concrete to be actually implemented. Three, three thrusts, therefore. How is, how is Russia evolving? Uh, I think that, that there is a background, an evolution I put up here towards mobilization, an evolution I can't quite nail down yet, which is from the more Soviet form of, of mobilization, which is a popular mobilization, if you will, a, a nation in arms, to a sense of more a nation armed. There's an important distinction to be made, which I'll try to elucidate. One of the things that might be interesting to discuss in the Q&A also is how this may compare and contrast to uh, Western strategic planning. I suspect that this is certainly a position of weakness for, for me, but as I, as I try and bring the Russian point in, we may be able to compare it and contrast with Russian strategic planning, Russia and the West. How much strategic planning is there actually to 2020 in the West? How are things done in the same, are things done in the same way or not? I read yesterday, or I began to read yesterday, um, Major General Elliot's book, which I think is very interesting, High Command. And halfway through it, I, halfway through the first chapter, I had to look back on the front just to check that it was actually about the British and not the Russians. Because there are, in, there are so many similarities between how does it, clever individuals working there, um, but the system creates certain problems. And I thought, wow, this, this is very interesting. So I look, I look forward to pursuing that. I wasn't sure whether you can you can you see the maps here at the at the back. There are four maps here. I want to, to take us through to begin with. Well, on this first slide, this is how we tend to see Russia. This one here, top left. We tend to see Russia as on the edge of Europe when we look at it from London. A small fragment on the edge of of, of Europe, really. Um, at the same time, we often think that Russian strategic planning is, is a threat to Europe, undermines the European architecture. Of course, the Russians tend to see it more like this, that Europe is actually um, on the fringe of Russia. Actually, these two ones are the ones I want to bring, draw your attention to first. Russia at the center of the world, because that's how you would see the map in, if you were looking at it in Moscow. And Europe is important, yes, but nowhere near as important as China and Central Asia and India and also Africa. This is a particularly important map. But the final one here for this point is, is this map here, which is BRICS. And this is intended to demonstrate the, how Russia sees the world evolving, i.e. the decline of the West and the rise of, of multipolarity, the rise of other centers that are, are making the world more internationally democratic. So you see the roles of how, how, how China, India, South Africa, and Brazil are highlighted in Russian foreign security thinking. If I've taken you through that, I want to take you into two further maps so that we can begin to see, see the world differently from Russia. This is one I think is fundamentally important. <coughs> it's the best I could do before the next slide to illustrate the point I wish to make. Everything looks familiar, except it's very, very different. The same body of evidence. The point I want to make here is that the Russians, over the last 20 years particularly, the Russians have drawn almost systematically, and in fact increasingly systematically, a different series of conclusions from the same body of evidence when we're talking about post-Cold War Europe, when we talk about the end of the Cold War, how it ended, why it ended, how we talk about the 1990s, how we talk about 
the energy wars between uh, Gazprom and Nasser, Nasser Hazul Karimi, and, and who was responsible for them and why. When we talk about um, the role that the West is playing, again, it looks similar. You'll all be familiar with the trend if, if I say Kosovo, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, Ukraine. Of course, this will all create certain images in your mind. But that is the tra Russian trajectory that demonstrates Western intervention, Western creation of instability, and the Western way of war. So I want, with this image, to start to, to, to pull away, to demonstrate that the view from Moscow is very, very different to the one in, in, in London and in Brussels. And, and the history is, the history is inverted not just for, for Europe, but also in terms of it, in dealing with its neighbors. To give you one small example, uh, you could view that the war this, in 2014 and ongoing now in Ukraine as the third Russo-Ukraine war since the end of uh, since the end of the Soviet Union. The first being in 94 and 96, when Ukrainians went to fight alongside the Chechens in Chechnya for Chechen independence. The second being in 2008, when the Ukrainians provided weapons for the Georgians and personnel who shot at the Russians, which really, really irritated the Russians a great deal. And the third in 2014. So even, I mean, even on, the, on the global scale, things look very different. But even once you get, begin to drill down, you find how history has, has made differentiations in terms of perspective and strategic understanding. This is the preparation, though, for, I, well, I'm not sure how you'll respond to this, but we're going to go for it anyway. This is a slide that hopefully develops and builds on that previous slide. Is the slide taken from a presentation from the previous Russian Chief of General Staff, Makarov. I, I won't go into the translation, but I'm sure you're starting to have a headache already. <laughs> but I wish just to point out several differences in how they perceive security in the environment. The blue, the blue ships, aircraft, and figures demonstrate how the US and NATO is encircling Russia. I suspect that you don't view it in quite the same way. Some of these parts you'll recognize the red conflicts, the red dots here, are conflicts, areas of actual or likely conflict. Most of them we'll recognize, but almost all of them, the causes of which are understood fundamentally differently. And we are mostly blamed by the Russians for these. And then these are the lists, oh, actually there's another point. These are, these are potential military flashpoints, is undecided territorial possession. Which is not really on our, uh, in, not really on the NATO uh, threat perception, or, or indeed the UK's threat perception. Just to put up here, just a couple of the indications again of Russian strategic planning. Um, the, the first of major military threat to Russian Federation, the attempts of the West to guarantee its energy security at the cost of um, economic and political interests of Russia. The second one, um, the, the, the collapse of fall in, in strategic balance of, of, of forces. If, therefore, it is possible to say that there are some similarities, I, I want to emphasize this flip view from Moscow there. Because if you could say, as the NATO Secretary General did, previous one did in, in April last year, that NATO is surrounded by an arc of crisis, of which one part is Russia. If you look at it from Moscow, you are also surrounded by an arc of crisis. You are not surrounded by an arc of crisis in the West, East, South, 
and, well, in fact, as you can see, pretty much entirely. Putin himself said that there are increasing number of hotspots in the world, in Europe, in Southeast Asia, in, in Asia-Pacific region, North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, in fact, almost everywhere except Antarctica. Very interesting. The potential challenges to Russia come from a, a range of different uh, sources, but predominantly from the West. The overall strategic environment is seen to becoming, as I mentioned, more multipolar, uh, but therefore increasingly prone to conflict and rivalry, where there will be a struggle for regional leadership and influence. Three sets of interrelated problems emerge as a result. First, the likelihood for regional uh, a conflict for regional dominance is most likely. This would be a conflict fought by second-tier powers, probably i.e., therefore, not the United States and not China. But a second-tier power is one that, if you're in Moscow, you're thinking, I might well have to be drawn into this. I might indeed be drawn into this if it is for regional dominance. Indeed, the other part of this is, is the potential for proxy and third-party conflicts, again, at a regional level in which Russia has no option but to become involved. Much of what I'm doing here is I'm quoting specifically from uh, Russian Chief of General Staff thinking, Russian military analysts thinking, security documentation, published official documents. The second set of problems is the arms race and the decrease in the strategic balance that, that I point to here. Putin himself said most of the world's leading countries actively upgrading their military arsenals, investing huge sums in developing advanced weapons. The Russians feel that they're in an arms race already. This for them could be, for instance, the UK ordering two new aircraft carriers. This also would be investment into high-precision weapons that, as Putin says, uh, I quote again, you are building high-precision weapons that have the same effect, more or less, as nuclear weapons, and at the same time, you are trying to negotiate people out of possession of nuclear weapons. Therefore, you will retain the strategic heights of command. You're also pushing forward a, military, a ballistic missile defense system that encircles and neutralizes Russians, Russia's uh, strategic balance capabilities. And again, I, I just want to point to the, un, uh, the, the, the difference in understanding here. When, when our American allies say, well, but we're retaining flexibility to develop in accordance with an evolving threat, in Moscow this is interpreted as hmm, inconsistency, unpredictability, and therefore destabilizing. And the final aspect of this third interrelation of problems in the, in the environment that Russia is working in, the context of which environment Russia sees itself, is that the West holds sway, but with declining influence. Therefore, it has considerable strength, but it can't fix problems, and indeed it's going around creating new ones, the most recent examples being Libya, Syria, and Ukraine, where it has enough strength to, create the, to, to rip the top off, but not to settle things back down. Additionally, this is a West that is uncompromising with Russia, and this is why I emphasize this point and where we'll lead to towards mobilization, Russian preparation for, uh, for a color revolution, is that it, the West threatens Russia with revolution, and NATO is expanding to its borders, destabilizing European security. Russian scenario is therefore extremely negative. It's a 21st century of instability. Russia is not ready for this, and the state recognizes it's not ready for this. 
despite improvements since the, since the 1990s. And this is, this is the whole point of the strategic planning exercise that we'll go into and the context for the discussion shortly. I'd just like to jump ahead to, to introduce some of the people that we're actually talking about, because one of the points I notice in the Western discussion of Russian, Russian strategy, but Russia more broadly, is it's held in the abstract. We talk about Putin. We talk about Putinology, uh, how Putin has lost his rationale or he's lying. And actually, therefore, you have Putinology without Putin, because we don't need to listen to him, because he's lying or he's irrational, both of which is not true. So what I want to do is, because strategy is also about the people involved, I think. Here are five people, five individuals. Um, I see some people nodding, uh, so I know that some of you are Russianists. Um, but you'll recognize the gentleman top left, I suspect. Uh, you might recognize the gentleman top right. I've put the names in because when I've been doing this briefing over the last year, the number of people who can actually recognize the others is next to zero. This is problematic because these are the people who are, who are producing and implementing Russian strategy. Uh, Nikolai Patrushev on the left, Sergei Ivanov, Alexei Kudrin, and Igor Sechin. Why is this team important? When Putin was interviewed in 1999, 2000, for the book uh, First Person, he was asked, who, who do you trust? Whose proposals do you listen to? Who will be on your team as you set it up over the next year? And he said, I think you've probably got here already, haven't you? But Nikolai Patrushev, Sergei Ivanov, Dmitry Medvedev, Alexei Kudrin, and Igor Sechin. Fourteen years later, the team is Patrushev, the head of the Security Council, Medvedev, ex-president and now prime minister, Sergei Ivanov, head of the presidential administration, Alexei Kudrin, chief financial advisor, informal at the moment, but, but effectively formal, and Igor Sechin, lead head knocker together or icebreaker, whichever you prefer. This is the commanding, they control all of the commanding heights of Russian strategic thinking. I'll come back to them shortly because it's very important. This is the new group of people, and it would be not surprising if people did not recognize them anyway. This is effectively mobilization. This is the system that is being put into, into effect to defibrillate the Russian system, which I'll come to shortly. Vyacheslav Volodin, Bocharov, Trutnev, Galushka, Zolotov, and, and, and Rakoshkin. This is, these, these people represent different aspects of this defibrillation that I'm going to go into of the system. Younger people being brought in, managers, way, the way that the security organs are being brought together and, and, and the, the vertical of power enhanced. I've jumped ahead deliberately because, because I want you to, to keep bearing in mind these people while I'm talking. Now, I'm going to turn more briefly, and let's go over relatively quickly the, 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 the commitment to strategic planning that we've seen from, from Moscow over the last 15 years. As I mentioned earlier, there are three stages to it. Um, the first, 1999 to 2005, strategy 2010. From about 2005 onwards to about 2011, you see a second stage. This is the stage that is based around the publication in 2008 and 9 of a series of documents the Long-Term Socio-Economic Development Plan to 2020, the National Security Strategy to 2020, and a cascade of other documents. Already you can see the horizon that is being shaped. So one is 2020. If you think that was in 2006-07 in preparation, that's two electoral cycles away, beyond two electoral cycles in Russia. At the same time in this second period, 
this second stage. You have um, a, an attempt to develop Russian strategic planning legislation. So the realization in 2006 that actually we haven't anything, we've got regional strategic planning, but we haven't got federal strategic planning. So you have the, the beginning of the process for the foundation for strategic planning, which was finally um, signed off by Putin uh, and Medvedev in 2009. This is the basis for the law on strategic planning that was finally signed into, into public domain last year. The third stage is, I think, a particularly important one. That's the one I want to focus on today. That's, that's from 2012 onwards. And it builds on this. It's a sense of evolution and continuity from, from second stage. There's no direct split. It's, it's leading through. So even though the economic crisis of 2008 and 2009 had a very significant impact on stage two, the assumptions, the basic assumptions, and the drive and the continuity is there. It's based on the May decrees. These are decrees that Putin himself signed into, into force when he was uh, elected back to the Kremlin as president in May 2012. I'm going to try and turn this thing. Here we go. Um, people have tended to see a big distinction and wanted to see a big distinction between the Putin presidencies and the Medvedev presidencies. In my mind, this is a mistake. These two men served together for, for, have served together for 20 years. They were the ones running the strategic overhaul. There is no great distinction between stage two and stage three because Medvedev and Putin ran them both. What happened with the May decrees, however, is that Putin took his election campaign and his articles from that campaign, uh, which, which created a sense of, in inverted commas, legitimacy, because they had been backed by popular vote in the election. Now, it doesn't matter if you believe the official number of 65% or the opposition accepted number of 54% who won the election. Putin won the election. We can talk about democracy and troubles thereof. But, but what I'm trying to get at is that the agenda that Putin took to the population in 2011-2012 is understood by the leadership team to have been given a legitimating uh, vote by the population. They are an ex the, the, these decrees, are, are 11 decrees, are mostly based on domestic development, with two or three, depending on how you define it, on, on, on military and foreign affairs. It's a hugely ambitious uh, scope, uh, a sweep from big, broad generalizations that the foreign minister, will prepare, foreign minister will prepare a foreign policy concept, down to deciding certain details about the number of people who will be dying on the roads by 2018. A huge sweep in, from generality down to detail. Putin himself has acknowledged that this strategic agenda is unprecedented in the challenges that he offers. it offers as a, as a, as a, as a list of plans, as a list of, of, of of goals, but at the same time, regardless of the economic environment or the political environment, this is an agenda that is going to be forced through. Fine. As I mentioned at the beginning, the strategy is, is on one hand, formulation of plans, but on the other hand, it's, it's implementation. And I'd like to take you, therefore, now to the other series of questions, which is whether this huge agenda which has been set up and planned and created by, by this leadership team and the Security Council, um, of which there are four members here. Uh, the Security Council, I probably ought to just say, is, is, the, is the predominant formal organ, official organ, for bringing together ministerial resources and experience, <coughs> expertise, authority. Uh, it's, 
Medvedev is the only one on this body, uh, permanent standing body first tier, who is um, representing the socio-economic section. The rest is security. Foreign Minister Lavrov, as you see, but also Fradkov, Bortnikov, two intelligence heads, and Sergei Shoigu, the new, the, the relatively new defense minister. This security, uh, this, this security council is, is the hub for, for decision making. I, sh I should have mentioned that earlier. But let's turn to the, the implementation, because for me, this is where the Russians have faced their real problems. And this is, this is where we need to look more deeply. First point I want to make is that there is a huge planning burden has been pl placed on a rather limited bureaucracy. Therefore, there are significant gaps that open up, not just the ones about the gaps where they can't talk about things in public, like the role of China and what they want to do about China, but actual specific gaps about how to fulfill things. And the Russian leadership faces the typical problems that you may recognize from looking at other forms of strategy of ministries couching documents in very vague terms. Engage here, enhance this, build this. And Putin himself, I'm going to keep turning back to Putin because Putin understands the flaws in the system very, very well. And he pointed out, well, these vaguely formulated documents do not provide guidelines for action or concrete objectives. So he keeps returning the documents to the ministries and beating them up to get on with it. So if the plans at the, at the top level, the, the, the May decrees, the, the long-term socioeconomic development and so on, are broadly consistent within themselves, we already find this, this gap in strategic planning between them and the implementers, where the plans are broad for consensus, but not precise enough for implementation, not precise enough for practical uh, traction. The second point is the question of bringing resources to, 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 these, uh, to these plans. The target set out all sorts of, of grandiose plans, many of which demand billions and billions of dollars. I'll keep it in dollars for the time being, but I mean, you already understand that there's a gap opening up in that, in that sense. Most of the Russian strategic agenda is built on a GDP growth of 4 to 5%. Anyone know what the Russian GDP growth is right now? About minus naught. We've got no precise clue exactly how it is going, but it, it looks, despite the, 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 the ambiguous pictures, so that Russia is going to go into recession. This puts a huge hole in the strategic plan. Even though they have billions of dollars of, 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 uh, of strategic capital on which they can draw. So therefore, they're beginning to, to try to address this through how to make the system more efficient. Because the finance ministry keeps turning up and saying, I'm sorry, but Vladimir Vladimirovich, but we just don't have the funds to implement the demands that you're placing on us. The regional budgets cannot afford the projects that are being forced on them. And then, of course, we have, I'll mention it, but you already know anyway, the extra added burden of systemic questions such as corruption, which is just like an open, an open fire hose, the money just flowing out of the, out of the budget. So resources are extremely difficult to, to, to mix and match towards this. And then, of course, you have competition between the ministries. Because if the military wants $500 billion for its plan, the housing and utilities need $300 billion for, for their plan, and then we have to develop the Far East as well. Finally, we'll, well, no, two more points about implementation. The question of conducting the orchestra. 
that I mentioned at the beginning, this unifying, this attempt to bring these actors together is extremely difficult in Russia. I think you can probably say it about most places, but we are talking about <laughs> Russia. So the, 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 the orchestra is very rarely harmonious. The agencies, of course, look to their own interests. You have blurred lines of responsibility between ministries, whether the Ministry of Regional Development and the Regional Construction uh, actually overlap or interfere, whether the, who is responsible for what in terms of security, who is in terms of what for, for all sorts of different questions regarding and relating to the plan. And there is also, finally, the prolonged, uh, in this sense of, of, of conducting the orchestra, the prolonged tension between defence and security budgeting on the one hand and economics on the other, which we'll return to towards the end. But as I've mentioned, I leave these people up here, the, the defence and security budget tends to control strategic planning. The final point to make about the implementation of, of Russian uh, plans is the limitation of presidential power. Now, I'm sure you've all heard of the vertical of power in Russia, uh, how Putin commands what, do, what happens in Russia and, and he gets things done because he's a, a KGB hard man. It's, it's simply not true. It's not true. I'll give you several examples, but, but throughout the first, of, the first eight years of Putin's presidency, it's his first two terms, also through Medvedev's term, and now as well, we have the presidential leadership in complete frustration with the lack of implementation of their orders. By 2010, you have the, 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 the head of the control directorate, Chuichenka, uh, announcing, well, we're delighted because our efforts have led to an increase in implementation of presidential orders by 68%. Uh, that meant that 20% of the presidential <coughs> instructions were implemented on time. 20% of presidential instructions. Now, since the May decrees have, have, uh, have been uh, signed into force, we have Putin jetting around the country, going to the Far East, for instance, Far Eastern development, sitting in a group much like this with, with regional authorities, and Putin saying, we agreed this last year. Uh, you've implemented 20% of, 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 of the plans. What happened to the other 80%? And the journalist who was covering it quoted Putin and said, what, what's going on? Will you do your work or won't you? But the Putin quote. And the journalist's quote was, yes, Vladimir Vladimirovich, but you're only here for a short time, aren't you? With the answer being that, well, basically, as soon as you clear off to go to Perm or, or, or wherever it is, we're done, thank you very much. So the implementation of presidential instructions is, is, is perhaps one of the weakest points here in, uh, in, in terms of strategy. Increasingly, you have parliamentarians talking about, um, about sabotage, vreditelstvo, um, passive revolution within the bureaucracy, passive resistance, such that the, the law and strategic planning, which I mentioned earlier, increasingly is being shaped towards having legal and criminal responsibility for the failure to implement presidential instructions. So it will soon become a crime to not do what the president says. This is because the parliamentarians who are putting through this law say not a single one of the presidential instructions from May decrees have been implemented. Not a single one. This just creates paper. <coughs> right, so if that's, therefore, I, I, where I want to leave that part is that the system does not function. You have formulation of plan after plan after plan, but a great deal of difficulty in inserting it into, into practicality. So there is a political idea, but not a strategy. 
And this is why I think that the Russia is, I'm going to use the term defibrillating, because I think that the Russian system recognizes, the leadership recognizes this, and is attempting to, given the understanding of the international environment, to defibrillate its system, to excite it back into some form of life. I did a little bit of research. My neighbor is a doctor, and, uh, and she said, well, actually, the system cannot be dead, of course. Don't forget, you can't bring someone back to life with defibrillation. And indeed, defibrillation only works 2% of the time. I just leave that in, in, your, in your minds. <laughs> Two points, I suppose, three points I'd like to focus on with this defibrillation. And hopefully we'll move forward to see the people involved. The first point is budgetary efficiency and cost cutting costs. You see increasingly a terminology being used about mobilization budgets, about emergency budgeting. And what you have is a move towards, uh, away from state budgets to program budgeting, to try to rebalance the, the budget so that you move away from this problem of having not enough here and too much there. So they become specifically program-oriented budgets. You then have assessment for, for excess use and failure to comply with budgetary law. So mobilization is tied up also with, with punitive measures. Something like 27,000 officials were sanctioned in 2013 for not knowing budgetary law and for falling foul of it. And that is not for corruption. So they are attempting to, to, to add um, mobilization measures to the budget. <coughs> didn't yet move it forward, but it will do shortly, I hope. The second point is this, uh, an ongoing rotation of official figures, and a, a, a subtle but important change in the structure of political and, uh, and, uh, and social power. Ah, here we go. The rotation is intended to do two or three, thi or three things, really. First of all, it involves firing individuals. Now, this may sound, well, yes, of course, someone gets fired for not doing their job properly. No. In the previous administration, in fact, in the previous two administrations, neither Putin nor Medvedev liked to fire people. In this administration alone, four have been fired for not doing their instructions, not fulfilling their instructions. These are ministerial level people, let alone the governors. So quite a, quite a change in how they're doing things. And the, the, the president is administering public de uh, denunciations, and then people are fired. Quite unusual, actually. Second, this, part of this reshuffle is to try to create a, um, an invigorated vertical of power, whereby you have at the center the minister responsible, you then have a presidential plenipotentiary, and the governor for all strategic regions. So you're, you're, you're reinforcing the vertical of power twice. That's why I put up people like Ragoshkin and Trutnev and Galoshkin. These two people have been sent out as a team to the Far East to try and get it going. Both of them are highly experienced managers and carry political weight. Ragoshkin is one of the interior, is ex-interior ministry uh, and has been moved, he illustrates the Siberian district, but the same point, is that you're moving economic, social, and political together to try and get things going. In certain districts, that also involves security. The, the, the rotation of ple presidential plenipotentiaries is, uh, is, I think, also a very this important point. The third point is to create a series of para-institutional organizations 
again, something quite new. And this is why I, I have these three figures, Volun, Mocharov, and, and Galushka. Again, I come back to try and illustrate the point here. Volodin is, is the deputy, first deputy uh, in, uh, in the presidential administration responsible for domestic politics. He's the guy that runs the show for domestic political uh, developments. And he is at the, the, the core of setting up something called the All-Russian Popular Front, Narodny Front. This is an organization that is, in effect, para-institutional, as I say. It's not, beholden to, uh, it's not beholden to a ministry. It's not beholden to anything except Putin and society. And they have been tasked with monitoring governors, monitoring implementation of laws, formulating policy towards plans. So really, they've become an, an increasingly important part of, of Russian, uh, Russian society, of Russian political power. Sorry. So, the, so what I'm trying to get at here is this sense of defibrillation is, is, is political and security and, uh, and with some economic aspects to it as well, but is social. And I return you to that point about the May decrees being legitimated by society in Putin's mind. And this attempt to build by Putin a link directly between him and that leadership that I introduced at the beginning and society. So actually skipping the passive bureaucracy. I just point out that the, 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 the Narodny Front, the Popular Front, is not just involved in formulating the plans and preparing Putin's speeches, such as the Federal Assembly speech, uh, but is also and, and monitoring the governor's uh, effectiveness. And in fact, they replace governors. They have them fired by Putin and then move in and replace them. So almost cuckoo-like, actually. But they are also moving towards this anti-corruption campaign, so for honest procurement. So the government is actually, the leadership is actually uh, co-opting some of the opposition's concerns and drawing itself in because it needs to. It needs to address corruption in order to, to, to sustain the budget. And finally, the, the, the ONF, just because it relates to, to what happened last year, has a very active role in Crimea and social, social mobilization. The ONF was driving force behind the Mwivmisti, we, We're Together, um, parades in, in, throughout Russia during the, the annexation of Crimea, and was the first non Russian non-military organization into Crimea after the annexation. So in many ways, although I mentioned the Security Council being very important, it's that first leadership team that I want you to keep in mind, and this group called the, the Narodny Front, the Popular Front, they're the, two, they're the two sort of elements of the defibrillator that, that, that the leadership is trying to put onto the system to shock it back into life. Now, I'm probably running a bit out of time now, so I'll, um, I'll just draw it, to, draw it to a conclusion by, by making several points about... Oh, sorry, that went forward. Uh, You can, hopefully you can see that. You carry on, I'll Okay, thank you. This is the main concern. The main, the, thank you, the, the, the fundament of what the Russians are up to at the moment, I think, is trying to color revolution, color revolution proof Russia. This is the photo I, I took at one of the demonstrations not long ago. And I draw your attention not, not to this part, the bit we recognize, but this part. And that is an orange snake. 
orange being the color of revolution in, in Ukraine, gripped in the black fist. That is the predominant concern. Now, of course, we have they have concerns about, about European security and enlargement of NATO and, and so on. But NATO itself is not viewed as a major threat. What is a major threat is the US, a US-led uh, color revolution launched in Russia over the next two to five years. We see increasing mention of this. And why is this important? Well, first, you have the, the, the parliamentary elections in 2016 scheduled for 2016. Then you have the presidential election scheduled for 2018. And the, what, what we have is this, is this view from Moscow that an, an opponent, a threatening opponent, has launched wars of human intervention, wars of controlled chaos, wars of color revolution, whichever of those three you wish to call them, <coughs> deliberately to undermine regimes they do not like, bring them down, and then replace them. And I draw you back to that list, of, that historical list I mentioned of Kosovo, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, and now Ukraine. And, this is, and, and the Arab Spring, of course, features very, very prominently in this. And this is what the Russians see the West preparing for them over the next five years. Now, nobody is saying, and we can come back to it in the Q&A, that there is not a serious problem in European security. Absolutely there is. <coughs> But this is not the number one point for the Russians, because they don't believe that they started it. They believe that they were responding to NATO, NATO enlargement and the US involvement. They believe that they have seen in Ukraine an attempt to create color revolution, war by color revolution and have succeeded. So it's a preparatory for, for what they're going to try and launch onto Russia. I'd be surprised if many of people in the, in the room here agreed with that. But that's not my point. This is, again, trying, trying to move away to see the strategic horizon from, from the, Russian, uh, the Russian view. And as a result, the, the Russians have been trying to create an uh, uh, emergency conditions to defibrillate their system, as I've called it, to prepare the society for that, whether this be through economic measures, whether this be through social measures or intern, interior security measures. I don't think, personally, that the West is trying to launch a color revolution on Russia. But let me leave that to one side for a second. Strategy making in Russia is very, very difficult. This sense of creation of power is very difficult. But the, the, the manual control that they have at the moment, which is where Putin turns up to Permor or the Far East and focuses specifically like the lighthouse on you, but that's real power creation. But like a lighthouse, it has to move on. And it moves on, it moves away, and then it comes down to you. And in fact, manual control can be understood in this way, that the blaze is really hard on you. Manual control is very tough, very serious. But it only comes round once in a while. So this, this, this is that ambiguity I want to come to with that. But many of the measures that they're implementing to try to defibrillate the system are not, in fact, necessarily working. For instance, it's unclear that the corruption campaign will necessarily resolve the problem or relieve the burden on the budget. It is unclear at the moment whether the, 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 the rotation will, will lead to any greater efficiency in the implementation of instructions. It is unclear that the, um, 
that the, the shift from state-focused state budget to, to program-focused budget is actually going to settle in and be more functional and save money. So we're likely to see a continuation, in my view. I know it's easy to say continuity, continuity more than change, but we're likely to see an acceleration of this defibrillating process that, in my view, will move towards mobilization. They're already rehearsing mobilization. Um, we, have, we have some of the, the people I put up on the, on the photos here asking Putin, Shaigu, asked Putin recently to have regional governors military, militarily trained and to rehearse mobilizing their region in case of war. We have the, uh, the ONF, the Narodny Front, practicing societal mobilization. We have the finance ministry explicitly talking in public about the possibility for mobilization budgets. So in my mind, this is, this, is where we are, this is where we're working towards with the Russians. And that is why I, I've, I've spoken mostly about strategy and less about mobilization, because my, my work is effectively at the hinge of two projects, one of which I've spent a fair amount of time on, as you can probably tell, I hope, uh, and the other which I'm just starting, which is this mobilization one. <coughs> For me, therefore, strategy is, is, is very important to the Russian leadership consistent element of strategic planning and thinking. It's based in a team, but they have this political idea rather than a strategy because of the great difficulty of implementing planning. And their efforts to, to defibrillate this system are likely to make the system continue to function in the way it does, but under greater pressure. It won't make it any more, more pretty, probably not much more effective. So again, we'll have a sort of a version of the Russian phrase not beautiful, but, but effective. Certainly not efficient. And on that note, I'll, I'll, I'll finish. Thank you very much for your attention.